You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's more than radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in Mid-Missouri. I'm Diana Moxon. On today's show, I am delighted to have in the studio actor Trent Rash and artistic director Trey Compton from Stevens College, who will be opening their new production of Fun Home tonight at the Mecklenburg Playhouse. And later in the show, artist Craig Norton pops by to tell us about his show, Real Western Art, that is on display at Columbia College for the next week. But first, Trent and Trey... Welcome to our fun home. Ah, good morning. <laughs> Thank good morning. you. <laughs> so whenever I introduce people on the show, I always feel like such an underachiever. And today is no exception. Trent, you are the Assistant Professor of Music and Musical Theatre at Stevens College mm-hmm. and also Assistant Music Director at MU's St. Thomas More Newman Centre. Yes. Still so? yeah, yeah. And you're also a co-founder and a singer with the vocal ensemble Elan. Yes. You have a private studio named mm-hmm. Rash Music. Mm-hmm. You've been an actor, a singer, music director, production director for more than 40 shows yeah. for Columbia Entertainment Company, Pace Children's Theatre, Talking Horse Productions, mm-hmm. Odyssey Chamber Series, mm-hmm. Boom Concert Series, Missouri Contemporary Ballet. Mm-hmm. Your first show was South Pacific at the age of 10, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and you have a master's degree in vocal performance and you are a father of three yes did i miss anything uh, else? That, yeah that sounds like a lot <laughs> we'll stop there <laughs> and trey you're visiting columbia as the guest artistic director for the stevens college production of fun home you're a director a choreographer and a fight director and actor and when people write reviews of your directing they use words like outstanding masterful whip smart perfection and when it comes to stage combat which you say so you teach your resume lists unarmed knife rapier and dagger which must be great skills to have in a dark alley yes to feign them in a dark alley unfortunately there's there's a joke in the combat world that when actually addressed with conflict we wouldn't actually punch the person i've never been in the situation yet but the night is young (laughs) you just pretend you just make the right moves and people will run away um And also we were talking before the show that you have some other special skills in terms of accents. So you do uh, British received pronunciation, which is kind of the posh one, which you can fall into at any time if you feel so inclined. Cockney. (laughs) Um, And then you do Irish, Southern American, I guess. But there's lots of different Southerns. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. French and Pittsburgh. Well, I'm from Pittsburgh, so (laughs) we were talking before we were on the air. If if I have enough to drink, man, the the yinzer will come out of me. If anyone's from Pittsburgh, you'll realize what yinzer means. Uh, Yins is y'all in Pittsburgh. So they'll go, y'all, yins going down to see the stillers. It's the most disgusting accent, but God, I love it. I love it so much. It actually won the worst accent in America. There was a poll, and Pittsburgh won. happy city of champions for that one (laughs) you know they did a poll in england years ago or in the uk for which accents were acceptable and i think edinburgh was like number two this is going back a decade or more when when accents we still weren't really allowed to have regional accents if you were going to be on tv so i think you know rp the london posh accent was number one most acceptable then it was edinburgh Uh was number two glasgow was way down the list and my home accent was also way down the list brighton (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So sometimes you just got to move on with your accent. Yeah, anyway, 
Fun Home opens tonight at the Mecklenburg Playhouse. It was first performed off-Broadway at the Public Theatre in October 2013 and then on-Broadway in 2015. And the on-Broadway version was nominated for 12 Tony Awards and won five, including Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical and Best Original Score. And I think, again, we said off-air, its first international staging was in Manila and then Singapore, um, which seemed like odd cities for this particular musical to be played in and it's just finished playing in london so trent give us a history and a synopsis of fun home Oh my goodness. Well, it's based on a graphic novel by Alison Bechtel. Um, and essentially, she is the central character in the story. Um, and there, we see, honestly, three different versions of herself at different stages in her life. And um, the premise is she's writing the, the graphic novel. And uh, as she's doing that, these memories are being recreated um, in front of her and she's seeing them take place. So we see her as um, sort of a 10-year-old version of herself at home with her brothers and her mom and dad and then we see her as a um, 18, 19-year-old version of herself uh, just going off to college um, and then we see her as her her 43-year-old self writing the graphic novel. And um, she's essentially deciding what is going to go into it and what is not. And, and in the process is um, learning how to deal with um, her father's suicide um, and also the fact that um, her father was a closet homosexual and the fact that she was a homosexual and, and how, how that all happened really in the span of four months that she came out and then her father, she found out about her father and then he committed suicide. So, you know, it's very fun. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't sound like it's a terribly uplifting. I, right. I play. I've, I've read the libretto and there yes. are... Um, moments of um lightness to it yes there are there are some there are some fun moments and some really fun songs um and then there are some very difficult moments absolutely so trey is the director how do you stage three overlapping storylines from three different time eras without leaving the audience confused well luckily it's great writing so my job is much easier with great writing there's a reason it won all of these tonys right um, it's really well structured and so theatrical in the way it seamlessly jumps from Allison to Allison. You know, I talked to these three actors, actresses, all three are students, all three are brilliant actresses, um, and they really connect to the material. But I talk to them to just worry about moment to moment what's happening for them because it can be overwhelming, particularly for the adult version of this character, to sort of feel like she has to take everything in at once. She never leaves the stage, right? So we just have to worry about moment to moment work. Do do all three Allison stay on the stage for the whole show, or just adult Allison? Just adult Allison, because it's to me, it's all about the artistic process. It's her revisiting all of these memories, unearthing all of these issues that either she had forgotten about or she's re repressing subconsciously while she's creating the piece. So she remains on stage, but it varies between the sort of adolescent Allison and the teenage Allison, moment to moment. The playwright, Lisa Tron, she says in the foreword to the play that it's surprisingly difficult to keep a sense of foreboding or impending sadness from creeping into all sorts of places where it shouldn't be. Oh, yeah. as, as an actor, do you have kind of the same difficulty? I mean, is it, knowing what's coming, is it hard to stay light in the light parts? 
Um, no, that's. I'm glad you brought up that that because I read that. Um, that's from like the the preface mm-hmm. in, the, in the libretto, and that particular line that you just read um, was really important to me when I was first getting started because um, I think that that's really important. And, and as he said, living in that moment um, and the truth of that moment, which which we didn't know what was going to happen in ten years. So just staying where you were is really important. And I, I don't I don't think it's hard um, if you're really in that moment and, and, and where it is and what's happening. Right, and I think something else she says in the forward is, you know, uh, uh, medium Alison, Alison at 19, she doesn't know, the character at that point doesn't know how her father is about to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. And so she's really happy. It's a joyful part of her life because she's found her voice, she's found herself, she's mm-hmm. come out, she's found a, a girlfriend. And so there's all this joy that that moment in her life, but as an audience member... And as the other actors, you know what's about to happen, but you have to just kind of blank it out and Mm. let that joy happen by itself. That's the hardest part of the gig for these actors, or really any actors dealing with that. It's really Shakespearean in how it's told. I mean, at the front of the play, in Fair Verona, these two lovers, (laughs) they're going to die, right? At the front of the play, we learn that Trent's character will kill himself, Mm -hmm. right? So it's all about Allison's journey, and it's less about the fact that that will happen and more about the fact that she needs to process why that happened and if she had anything to do with it. Because as a gay woman who comes out at this point in her life and with a closeted father, she ends up blaming herself, which is unfounded, but she has to go through the process of unearthing all of these memories to come to that realization. Um, you. I guess you play Bruce, Alison's yes. father. Yes. I'm looking, reading the s- scripts. I figured that must be who you play. Um, and he's an incredibly complex character. Just talk about, as an actor, how you got into his head. Oh, okay. At first, I didn't want to. <laughs> I'll be honest. You know, I had to... Um, now I've actually grown to really like him. I mean, even even with all this, his issues. But um, I think it was important to find, um, uh, you know, the fact that he's a human and... Um, all humans, um, you know, have to survive in the ways that they know how. And within the confines that he had in his own life, you know, he did what he could and how he could do it. And so, um, you know, I, 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 I have to think a lot about, um, a lot of my friends who are, um, homosexual and, and how how hard it is even sometimes you know I don't think about this you know to hold hands in public things like that and even back in the 80s 70s how even harder that probably was um, and so people who were um, homosexual why they chose not to live that life or to, to hide that part of their life and, and I think a lot of it was um, trying to find that understanding you know um of of how hard it how hard it, how hard of a road it was um to make that decision and and really you know how brave it is then for medium allison to just embrace that so fully um and how hard that is for her father to see that i think right so i was going to say do you like bruce um i did not like him at all um i at, at this point i i have grown to um have an understanding of him um and almost feel sad for him. <laughs> yeah, so, he's a tragic character. Mm-hmm, yeah, living in a life unfulfilled and yeah. And, uh, yeah. I, I, I liked Bruce for a, a while, but I I kind of lost my patience with him. There's a there's a line um, 
uh, when young Alison comes home from school, she's working on a school project, and it says in the script, you know, small Alison bursting with pride. She's so excited to show her dad this mm-hmm. piece of this drawing that she's done, and so then he, and he's trying to get her to change it and do it mm-hmm. his way, and mm-hmm. he says, "But you cannot do it like that unless you want to ruin it. You want to take a half baked mess to school. You want to embarrass yourself like that. It's fine with me." And I thought, God, you're talking to a child. It just seemed like he was kind of uh, such a harsh and twisted character that he could be so mean to his daughter because she just wasn't doing it the way that he wanted it done. He was really controlling the whole time. Uh, you know, there are things in his life he couldn't control, so he tried to control what he could. But I also think that he was a very smart, brilliant man. And I think that he did know um, a lot of things about art and, and, and things. And was and actually, I think he was a really good teacher. Um, and so, so, you know, I think that there were a lot of times he, he really tried to teach um, his own children and, 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 and open them up to, you know, c- culture and things that a lot of kids don't get a lot of the time. I think the play does a great job in uh, in detailing the tension that's in the Mm -hmm. household between Mm -hmm. the mother who knows who her husband is. Mm -hmm. She knows that he's having affairs with men and they can't talk about it and he doesn't want to bring it up. Mm -hmm. And the children who are kind of unaware. There's a a song early on when they have the lady from the historical society Mm -hmm. comes and um, they're all singing, see how we polish and we shine, we rearrange and realign, everything is balanced and serene like chaos happens if it's never like chaos never happens if it's never seen and just this how she's holding the whole thing together mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about the role of Alison and the three Alisons yeah. uh, who is performing adult Alison her name is uh, Colleen O'Brien she's a transfer I believe she's in her early 20s mm-hmm. it's amazing actually the three Alisons how much they connect with the play mm-hmm. Uh, without giving anything away, one of them has uh, experienced the loss of a father. One of them uh, is an is an out person in college. One of them has dealt with abuse, right? So they they really identify with the project. Um, not that that's needed for every production, but when they step in, saying, "I know this person," mm-hmm. "I know this person," they bring that with them and they wear it. And then we can explore how they're feeling as opposed to what the Allisons are feeling moment to moment. So when you're directing the, th- the three Allisons, small, medium, and adult Allison, with, different, with a different actor, when, when you were casting it, did you, was that a challenge, trying to find three people who had some similarity of uh, look? Mm. Or did that not play into it? Yeah, interestingly enough and this is not usually the case, the production was cast for me. I was doing a different production until I could arrive a few days late. So it was cast for me. It was actually a blessing as well because I didn't know these kids. I've never been to Missouri, you know, and the people who did cast the production, Gail, the dean, along with a couple faculty members, um, they knew the kids. They knew what the strengths were, and they knew who would play off of each other, which was really helpful. Luckily enough, uh, the three actresses look similar. Okay. That would not have been my priority, though. Okay. Yeah. 
just for the audience's sake, I wanted to throw kind of that balance of visual. Yeah, balance. because to me also, and I said this to them, they asked me at one point, you know, do we have to worry about doing the same mannerisms from point to point? And I said, well, listen, what's the difference between a 10-year-old and a 43-year-old? You change styles, mm -hmm. you grow, you look different, particularly uh, Alison Bechtel. If you look at the actual person mm. whose story we are telling. If you look at a picture of her as a 10-year-old, and then you look at a picture of her in her 40s when she wrote Fun Home, she takes on a completely different pers right. personality and style, right? Actually, what's crazy is that she um, mimics a lot of Bruce's style the older she gets. She gets the same sort of glasses, same haircut, some of the same cuts of um, uh, male clothing as well. So actually, if anything, if I was casting, I'd be more interested in making sure that Bruce and adult Allison looked similar. Mm. But, um, but do, do you do that? Do, you have, do they have the same glasses in the play? They do. Okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. they do. And that's based on the costume designer's research and also an artistic choice. And that's also how usually how the, the production is, is done. The uh, One of the things I read about the graphic novel was how much attention to detail Alison puts into the background of each mm -hmm. panel, what show is on the TV, what posters are on the wall. Yeah. In an interview, she said, I don't like pictures that don't have information in them. I want pictures that you have to read, that you have to decode, that take time, that you can get lost in. And I wondered how that translates into the scenery directions for the play. Is the is the background really important or do you, do you is it a bare stage to oh, make it less complicated? I love this question. <laughs> so... This is incredibly challenging. When I saw the production originally on Broadway, I saw it several times. I had a friend in it who was the standby, so anytime he went on, I'd like to, I went back. And of course, after I saw it the first time, I had to go back and see the original cast as well with him not in it. But it was at Circle in the Square Theater in New York, which it was in the round, right? Mm. You could use that theater either in a thrust circumstance or in the round. It was in the round. So, you know, pieces came up from the floor, and there was no backdrop, obviously, in the round. So, Allison, adult Allison, was created creating the memoir and you were looking sort of through her through her memory because she was right in front of you depending on where we were in the play so when I was tasked to stage this on a proscenium I had to basically just wipe my memory from what that original staging was because a proscenium place just plays so much differently than that's just a, a regular stage yeah just a stage right in front of you audience on one side actors on the other right. so it became apparent to me that adult allison's creation of the memoir was going to be front and center the entire play we wouldn't be watching through her we would be watching her watch them Right, so I knew that the backdrop needed to be the graphic novel. Mm. So Mi Mimi, who's our brilliant set designer, and I collaborated for a few months in making. And I don't know if you've seen the graphic novel, but she uses this hue of color. We call mm. it Bechtel blue. It's this sort of grayish, bluish, greenish, depressing, yet sort of funky blue. <laughs> and it can only be described as her own kind of blue. And the entire set is based on her cartoons basically so you see you see her cartoons on the on the backdrop well it's they're really like set pieces but instead of um real life sort of tangible bookcases it's a bookcase just all in shades of blue okay. as she's re and that's representation of as she's recollecting these things they're coming into focus she's drawing them right the Furniture pieces are all real. The costume pieces, that's where all of our color palette comes from. But the, the base scenery pieces are all Bechtel blue. 
so there aren't there aren't do you do scenery changes there's the oh, funeral yeah. home there's the college dorm room there's okay so there are yeah it's extensive and it's extensive i mean and, and it's and it's flashing back and forth i mean it's mm-hmm. it's, me- it's a memory play mm-hmm. so you're uh, as an audience member yeah <laughs> and as a director i guess you're moving things around Yes, it's this play is actually overwhelming in terms of how cinematic it is. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult as well because it was designed for pieces coming from the floor. Okay. Now, when it was done at the public originally, uh, it was on a proscenium, right? How we've staged it. But they had automation there. Mm-hmm. So then translating into actor-motivated scenic movement has been really challenging, to be honest. It flows and it is written in such a way that's so cinematic mm-hmm. and brilliantly it flows from moment to moment but that was i think the largest challenge with doing this piece without automation or magic theater magic. <laughs> yeah. so as as a director did you come to uh, columbia and stevens college because they invited you or because this play has had you in its grip for a few years and you just really wanted to direct this play yes both <laughs> yes both both so it was one on top of the other i i got the call to uh, through a mutual friend of the dean um, that they were looking for someone and after i saw it on broadway there are sort of shows that immediately you see it and you go my goodness to get my hands on this one and do Mm. it yeah yeah of course of course both um so there are three children in the play small allison and her two brothers and the play contains a lot of complex adult emotions and themes how did you prepare the children for taking on these roles did you have a heart-to-heart conversation about things we're going to talk about in the play you know we didn't should have done that i guess Yeah. They're mature, though. Yeah, they are. They're very much. The, 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 the boys in the play are actually already brothers, which I think is very helpful. Um, and they very much are brothers. It's fun to watch them interact. Um, but they come from a theater family. Uh, their mom's a theater teacher. Um, she loves the show, so I'm sure that she herself has talked with them um, about it and, and, and about what's in it. Mm-hmm. So give us a reminder of uh, tickets and when sure. and where and dates so um, people can so see from home. So we open tonight, uh, the 21st. We run also tomorrow and then a Sunday matinee on the 22nd at 2 and then next Friday and Saturday the 28th and 29th. You can get tickets by calling the box office at 573-876-7199 or by emailing boxoffice at stevens.edu. Okay. So this weekend or next weekend. Yes. And tickets available for all shows still. Yes. Okay. Bring everyone. And we should also mention that as uh, this weekend, there is also a pop-up art show happening in the lobby of the theatre honouring outstanding yes. women. So the reception for that, I think, is 5.30 this evening. The play starts at 7.30. 6, 6 p.m. is okay. the... Is the uh the reception. reception. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so people can come early and, yeah. and go to the reception and see the Absolutely. artwork. And that artwork is just up for this weekend's show, I think, is it? I think I think it's actually up for both. Okay. For both weekends. Okay. In the in the Maud Adams ga- art gallery. Okay. And mm-hmm. that's a that's a, a joins. Yeah, the, it's right the there lobby. off the right there off the lobby. There's a really lovely room and so it'll be all in there. And it's called Honoring Outstanding Women. There's a lot of fantastic mm-hmm. local female artists yeah. in that show. So I was interested when to read when the book first came out. Uh, Allison's original novel in 2006, Missouri, made the headlines for all the wrong reasons um, because it was temporarily banned from the Marshall Public Library after a resident complained that it was pornographic. 
Um, something which Bechtel refers to as a great honour to have her book pulled. Um, and according to a Duke Chronicle article in 2015, the book's on the reading list for the 2019 uh, English class, I guess. And some students are objecting based on religious, moral and cultural beliefs. So it's still uh, facing that idea of being banned. As, as actors and directors generally are trigger issues and beliefs an increasing consideration when you look at a season of shows do you feel like you're moderating what shows you put on because there are more issues that people Mm. have or are open about or or uh, i think it's even more important to do those shows uh i think um you know, I'm very, I'm very proud that we're doing this show, um, and I think that um, the more that we we make people feel uncomfortable, the better it is. I mean, th- that means that gets us to think about things, and there's a real need right now for us to be thinking <laughs> very hard and a lot um, about how we can get along and how important civility is and kindness and um, and um, understanding and compassion for others, no matter you know what their background is. Every single person that I've ever talked to, I have a lot of friends in the industry whose parents had an issue with it when they did come out. My best friend is gay. His uh, parents had, you know, sort of uh, did him way, you know, stopped talking to him after it came out. And over time, once they experience someone in their life uh, dealing with these issues, they come around. So to me, it about a conversation, right? And to me, what this play does is it puts someone's life in your face so that you can understand that these are real people, so that we're not just talking about what might be just an idea that you may or dis- may disagree with, right? To me, it's about this is a tangible family with feelings, mm-hmm. right? And this happened. This is a, right, true, a true story, story. Mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as Trent said, we should be talking about it. That's the one thing. People just have an opinion about something. They don't know someone mm-hmm. going through it. Right. What this play does is say, this happened. And then there's the car ride home where we get to talk about it, you know. It's not just escapism. I call it a third act musical, you know. That third act is the drive home, Mm -hmm. how it affects you, how it makes you ache the next day, right? Mm -hmm. I I just, I, I worry when I listen to the news and they give trigger warnings before news items. And I think, mm. but this is the world. This is real life. Mm-hmm. If we're yeah, having right. to warn people before right. news items, right. what world are we living in? Right. If we don't want to know that, if we're too scared to listen to the news. Yeah. Uh, so I wonder when you do plays like this, if you, if you feel like you have to say something to the audience in advance, or you just... You know, here's the thing. She calls it a tragedy comic. She's very upfront about it. There are moments of real real brilliant comedy in it mm-hmm. but there are really we tackle some really thematically mm-hmm. difficult things okay. and that's the way life is it's fleeting there are moments of absolute brilliant comedy and then in another moment just horror mm-hmm. right and that again cinematically this play just sort of weaves out in Absolutely. one moment we're joking in the next moment he's dead right right mm-hmm. And that's how life is. Art imitates life. It, it seemed when I read the story and, and read the background to the book that it didn't seem like if I was going to write a play based on the book that I would turn it into a musical. Interesting. It seemed like an odd choice for a musical. Does it seem odd? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I, I don't think so at all. I, I, I mean, I, I can understand that, but I, I feel... Um, it's, I just think it's such a beautiful piece. I mean, maybe I'm biased, obviously, but I think that the the... 
what they've done and the music that's written and how it's come from the inspiration of the book is, is really beautiful and in some ways can probably reach people in a different way um, that that might be as just as, as yeah, effective. Mm-hmm. You know what I'll say about it is I actually think more graphic novels should become musicals mm-hmm. because there's this sort of mentality right now to take movies and turn them into musicals which is commercially so successful mm-hmm. and novels are so difficult because there's so yeah. much information to cram into two hours, an hour and a half, three hours of a novel but what graphic novels do is they give you an image and then a text bubble but what the captions are are subtext Mm -hmm. and the perfect subtext is a Shakespearean monologue or a solo (laughs) right so it translates really beautifully moment to moment as this is what the dialogue is but this is what he's feeling about the man he's talking about right now caption and that's uh, a major theme in the play what the captions are right subtext right um, thank you so much, Trent Rash from yes. Stevens College and guest director Trey Compton. The musical Fun Home opens tonight at the Mecklenburg Playhouse and runs for two weekends. And a reminder again of the number they can call? Yes, 876-7199. Thank you so much. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPM Columbia. And after a short break, we'll be back with artist Craig Norton to talk about his art and his show at Columbia College entitled Real Western Art. Don't go away. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts, and I am delighted to welcome artist Craig Norton to the KOPN studio. Hello, Craig. Hi, how are you? First of all, I want to say thank you for driving to Columbia yesterday to give a talk (laughs) about your work at Columbia College, then going home to Perry, Missouri, uh, and being a dad to six kids while Mm -hmm. your wife is out of town, and then driving back to Columbia again this morning to talk to us. So welcome back. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. No problem. So I like to research people that Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, interviewing on the show, and you have a great website with lots of information about Thank your you. work and your philosophy and your work is pretty intense um, mm-hmm. it's about darkness and the human experience and social injustice and mistreatment and things that burden you and many of us and yet you are such a smiley jovial <laughs> funny seemingly well-adjusted person yeah, <laughs> yeah i know how does that the two kind of sides to your personality yeah i know a lot of people actually ask that all the time they're like your work makes me so sad and then they're like you don't seem sad. Are you sad? You know, so, yeah. No, I, I, I'm a pretty happy guy, but I mean, I got a lot of, a lot to be happy about. So, you know, I got, like you mentioned, six kids and, and, a, and a, a wife that's really supportive. And in the arts, uh, when you're an artist, uh, if, you, if you are married or whatever, um, your spouse, to be supportive is very important. So, right. You know, she's very patient. You know. <laughs> yeah. When do you find time to do your work? Do you work in, in nights? Um, I do work at night a lot, but then again, my you know my kids range from all the way from two, four, five, eight, ten, and twelve. So anyway, thirteen. I'm sorry she, if she was listening to it. I'm thirteen, Dad. <laughs> um, but uh, so you know, and actually, it's interesting. Like the last two years, maybe three, the time is kind of it gets smaller and smaller, and I have to find any moment to run in and paint a paint a you know a couple minutes and and then go and take care of like a kid that might be having an issue and then <laughs> you know it, it's 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 a little nuts but and especially because my youngest he didn't sleep at all for I mean he woke up five times a night and anyway long story short my wife and I were getting three to four hours of sleep a night and that's tough it's tough to, yeah and be to creative work. at the same time and but yeah. have a brain but I try to, I, I actually usually have a schedule at, at home. I have a, a sign in. If I had a card to t- clock in and clock out, I would, but I, <laughs> I write my times down to make sure I get 
you know time in so so your show that's on display at the larson gallery at columbia college uh, which runs through next friday the 28th mm-hmm. it's called real western art yes. and it focuses on the native american experience in particular the negative stereotypes that have been attached to native americans and their culture so tell me about the background to the show mm-hmm. um well this uh, this show came about um Basically, I'm part Native American, and and when my biological dad passed away, I got eight acres of land. Um, My grandfather actually grew up on the reservation, uh, and so I just started thinking a little bit more about my uh, culture or or my history, and then that's when I started to just... I study everything that I work on uh, in great depth. I do a lot of interviews and and read everything I can get my hands on. Um, This library actually here in town is a fantastic place to to get books, uh, Daniel Boone, but... I just kind of just it it just there was so much injustice and there's so much to the Native American story that doesn't get talked about a lot and I wanted to explore that with the work and so I started talking about the stereotypes that Native Americans have put on them um, and that's kind of where I started and the more and more I researched it you know, I became more and more just, I mean, I was outraged by just kind of the fact that the Native Americans have been kicked down so low that they don't just don't have much voice. And I wanted to explore that in my art. And I feel like art is a good way to do that. And, and it's a tool. It's a good tool to kind of get people to start thinking a little bit and uh, maybe do their own research, things like that. Have you had conversations with other Native Americans who've seen the show and how they respond to it? I haven't had, uh, there's not anybody in the area or that, because the, at Columbia College is the first time I've shown this this body of work. I oh. wanted to show it in, I have a gallery in New York City, Jim Kempner Gallery, that is the commercial gallery that shows my work. And they didn't, uh, they just weren't keen on showing it because of the um, sellability of it. And mm-hmm. be like, there's a, and I called the show Real Western Art because uh, I wanted to, tell the real story and 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 western art sells very well like you know i could have done the traditional native american on a horse with this moon shining behind him and or a cowboy running you know that sells very well but i wanted to tell like the re- i felt like the real story that needs to be told and so they didn't think it was a good seller so i i decided well i'm gonna try to find maybe some smaller, kind of grassroots almost approach, colleges, things like that. So you, you have great titles or interesting titles for your work. Um, Thank you. Or one of them is, don't worry about us Indians, we all own casinos and are stinking rich. Right, right. <laughs> they, yeah, I, I think titles are really important. I mean, I have another title called, um, We Gave You Corn, You Gave Us Smallpox, and, uh, you know, and also with just titles of my art shows in general, too, because... I like to add a little humor, especially with a dark subject, to grab at people's attention. I actually did a show one time at uh, the Holocaust Center in St. Louis, um, and it was about genocide, the history of genocide. And uh, it was neat because they were able to, they asked me to keep up the work for another four months after it had already been up for three, because kids were actually, students were able to come in and get something out of the work. And so I want to make the work approachable for everyone, and the title is just kind of a fun way to... Uh, that I like to use to get at least the attention and then hopefully they'll explore the painting and 
and think about it. You, uh, you are described as an outsider artist, as you have no classical training, mm-hmm. and uh, but you have been written up in the New York Times. Uh, in 2010, there was an article by Roberta Smith, who's a big art critic, yes. and uh, she described you as a self-taught artist with a mission and an almost freakishly developed skill set. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so describe your art for people mm-hmm. who haven't seen it. Sure. Uh, well, I'm known for my drawings, and I draw with a ballpoint pen. I do a stippling form, um, and, and, that, and, and a, a small drawing the size of most people's fist might take 50 hours to draw, lots of layers, and then I use wallpaper um, for the clothes of the figure. I'd get wallpaper books from the local wall, you know, wallpaper stores, and my wife would just roll her eyes when I'd pull up, up my car, and the car would be, the tires would be low on one side because those wallpaper books are so huge and would weigh half the car down. And then where would we put them? You know, that's the other question. And so I'd bring those in, and and so one drawing, one figure could take a hundred hours, and I usually will do multiple figures of maybe 30 or 40 to go with um, a a vignette, a scene on the wall. And uh, so that's what I'm known for. But this show in particular at Columbia College is a little different style. And I I believe that, for example, Picasso, he changed it. I'm not comparing myself to Picasso, but he changed his style constantly whenever he felt moved to do it. And I have always expressed to other artists that it's important to keep instead of doing the same painting for their whole entire 50-year career or whatever it is to keep and which is fine but just for me I feel like I need to explore different mediums different styles that you know sometimes it just whatever the subject or the theme is for me it just is a different different medium is appropriate so now, I read that early on in life you had planned on or considered going into the priesthood. Yes. And, and uh, so how did you get from that plan to being a nationally known artist? What was your route to fame? Well, it wasn't my calling, obviously, but um, that was just a whole, uh, yeah, it was a, a seminary in St. Louis called St. Louis Preparatory Seminary. And uh, it was something that I thought would be a great uh, career choice for me, but at the time, but then... Uh, but I always did want to get married and have kids, and that's not part of that. So uh, it just wasn't my calling. I left there um, after sophomore year and ended up transferring to it. And it was a really small school, which was great because it was only 20 kids in my graduating class. <laughs> then I went to the public school, and there was, you know, three or 400, you know, it was interesting. So you started drawing as a child. I did. And mm-hmm. when did you start selling work? Um, the first art I sold was when I was a bouncer at a little <laughs> bar in the central west end in st louis um i worked at the door and i was always drawing you know and there was a lot of downtime you know and between fights right and, um, <laughs> so and uh, and the funny thing is i'm a really like well if you knew me well you'd know i'm pretty like gentle and peaceful i don't like violence and and stuff so i don't know why i was working there but Anyway, but I would be drawing, and then I somehow somebody asked me to draw something for them, and I did it on a flower pot. And I painted this little flower pot, and it ended up kind of taking off while I was sitting at my chair. And people ordered $3,000 worth of these little flower pots as I sat doing bouncing work. What were you painting on the flower pots? Oh, all sorts of things. The I mean, there was a Laverne and Shirley water scheme, I believe with Santa Claus. Um, and uh, you know those those kind of I mean they were just off the wall things. That I think the strangest thing I ever did was um, uh, a woman had come in, an older lady, and she asked if I could please do a hand coming out of a toilet. So I mean, you know, so I mean, and, and that's not you know that's I'm not making that up. So that doesn't you know. 
<laughs> she explained to me what the per- what the reasoning behind that was, but you know, I just said okay, and she paid for it. You know, so and you were selling these like for thirty dollars a piece, and you- I was, yes, yes. I think I sold the flower or the um, the hand coming out of the toilet for a little more, but. Um, you know, but yeah, and I actually saved the money, and I went to Los Angeles with it, um, with that little savings at the time. So, so in your talk yesterday at Columbia College, you touched on the conflict for an artist between creating work that is commercially successful that people want to buy versus art that is a tool to educate. And you, you had this great quote, which I just love: "Is mm-hmm. uh, I know what sells commercially, and it goes really well with couches." Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, it does. It does couch art. And that's great. If that's what if somebody wants to do and make a business out of it, that's wonderful. For me, though, yeah, it's not uh, it's not what I was uh, made to do. And 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 it's true. But I mean, you actually walk through New York. If you've been to New York City, that's the mecca of the art world. And you would think that you would walk through New York and be just impressed by every gallery there and say, "Wow, that's groundbreaking! Wow, that's groundbreaking!" But it's literally, in my opinion, the same thing over and over again it's very trendy it's very uh you know i i I do want to say you know some people hey disagree with me and that's fine but sometimes the art world likes to pretend like they're so outside of the box and so different and we're so you know this is you know if you don't understand that blank canvas then you're you know just not with it you know or whatever you know i'm just but honestly i've ran into more even art museums that that are wonderful museums but they're like we just I know the board won't allow that work because it's too controversial now I mean I could do I could do human suffering stuff a lot but like I did a show in New York that's up right now it opened on the 8th it's called Unnatural Selection it's about uh, endangered animals and so I because I did this little coloring book on the side about endangered animals and adult coloring book. yeah just mm-hmm. to supplement a little income and and uh, it was great it was a neat experience but I learned a lot about endangered animals and I saw pictures of trophy hunters that were killing endangered animals and they would stand on top of them flexing their muscles just things like that just disrespectful and they talked about how much they respected the animals so anyway I did a whole show about that but my commercial gallery there in New York and also in California didn't want to show it uh Originally, I did talk to the gallery in, in California. I said, you know, I got this great new show about endangered animals. They said, wonderful, we'll have a show in the fall. And then, I didn't tell them exactly how I was approaching it. And then I did, and they said, well, it'll make people too sad. We can't do that show. They thought I was going to just do these beautiful elephants parading through the savannah, just with smiles on their faces. And that's, <laughs> that's what they thought I was going to do. But I took a different approach. So, yeah. So... So I, I've only seen your work that is your uh, socially burdened work. Mm-hmm. Do you have a whole other body of work that's not on your website that is what you know pays for <laughs> food and rent on and a mortgage and children going to school and that my, kind of thing? <laughs> well, it's funny. My mother would like me to have that other body of work <laughs> and uh, maybe my wife would too. But um, no, I don't have that other body of work. I mean, I do have a piece here at the local Daniel Boone Library that went to the show about I, I like I had mentioned earlier I did a show about the elderly and I did a few pieces that weren't maybe as because I wanted it, there to be a positive message in that show and there's a nice piece up there of a drawing of a of somebody visiting an older folks an older person at a home and just giving a car the little girls giving a card to the grandma and so there is some lighter work but my mom still I think wants me to just paint rainbows and flowers and whatever you know those kind of happy things which is great but just not 
What, what do your commercial galleries want you to paint? What are they waiting well, they, for? Well, it's interesting. Usually if you get a commercial gallery, let's just say in New York, for example, they if they sign you for your, for in this case, in my case, drawings, my drawings that I'm known for because they've had success with those, that's kind of what they want you to keep doing, um, in my experience. And so when you bring up something completely different, you know, paintings or sculptures or whatever, they're like, oh, that's nice, but can you just keep doing your drawings? I mean, mm-hmm. that's the, the you know consensus that I, I, I get. Um, and so, you know, the last two bodies of work I've done, um, the commercial galleries don't want it. But they tell me whenever I get back into doing my drawings again, you know, we'll do something. So, you know, that's that's fine and dandy, but it's it's tough, and it's tough for your... It's, and, and that's why a lot of artists, artists don't probably explore very much, especially mm-hmm. when they get signed to a gallery. They, they have a hard time exploring and um, evolving as an artist because they, they, they're told no. You know, this is what we want. And I actually, I, I, there was a time when um, I showed artwork at a, early on in my career before I got to galleries, I would show it everywhere I could and I showed it at a hair salon. And I sold my first $3,000 piece and everybody, I got so many people that, wanted that same piece and then you know I could have easily just done that piece over and over again and that would have been nice to make that money but at at that time I had already changed styles again and I wanted to explore something different mediums and you know but I could have got stuck you know it's easy to get stuck you know what was that piece about Um, it was actually a uh, a gentle older man I just say gentle he just looks gentle and peaceful and and he is watering with a giant yellow watering can (laughs) these beautiful roses see so that's totally uh-huh. not unicorns and rainbows I did, yeah exactly <laughs> I didn't get into my flow yet I was kind of just experimenting with paint basically because we talked about earlier about being self-taught well when you're self-taught you got to just just do it you know and, and then that's how you learn so you know just keep on painting keep on drawing so you the, the the largest shows that you have the one i think was it in brooklyn called 19 very old drawings in a coffin which is about that was uh, in manhattan as a manhattan mm-hmm. do and you're and you're not showing those at your main commercial galleries do they do the galleries object to you having shows in other galleries or because you're not going to sell work they don't really yeah mind. well actually that was the last show i did in manhattan they did show that i was very surprised um they just didn't show the recent one of the animals but um yeah usually when you're with a gallery in new york um they will i mean honestly most of it's not a contract with written signature it's mostly a handshake so mm-hmm. they frown upon you you know going with another gallery and kind of cutting them out um, which you know you want to you don't want to burn your bridges whatnot and so if somebody's been good to you you you, you stay with them but if there's a, if, a, if somebody wants to include you in a group show or something mm-hmm. like that you just I I would just ask the gallery if, if it was okay and usually they're okay with that some galleries require you to give them a cut too. Mm-hmm. like I used to have a st. Louis gallery and they introduced me to the New York gallery and so if the New York gallery sold something for about a year and a half uh, the New York gallery would get a cut and then the St. Louis gallery would get a cut and so my cut was even smaller <laughs> right. because if anybody's ever done art you get 50% as the average you know I mean because you could sell something for 30000 and be like yes I got it for the year I made it for the year and then you have to cut that in half and you're like okay 15 is good but you know <laughs> but. and you've got another gallery in there that's going to take another percentage yes, out so, yeah. yes yes yeah. so it's barely covering tough. materials right because you pay I mean you create large works large heavy 
Yeah, works, I do. I do. That you have to drive around the country yourself. Correct. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I actually, I really thought with the uh, last show I just did in New York that's up right now, I thought I was going to do all these small pieces. I, and I started it with small pieces that I could fit in my pocket almost. Not quite, but, and and that only lasted for a month or so. And so I have a, about 10 small pieces and then it got larger and larger. Um, talk about the show 19 Very Old Drawings in a Coffin and what, mm-hmm. what was your message there? Yeah, well, when uh, my work usually evolves from getting involved in the community. That's very important to me. I feel drawn to wherever I live. So I mean, there, there's work to be done everywhere you live. There's a need. And, um, and I encourage people uh, well, to just open your eyes and you'll see the needs. So when I lived in South City of St. Louis, the need was the youth was there and uh, there was a lot of gun violence. And when I moved to Perry, Missouri, which is a small town, uh, the youth is not as I don't I don't notice it as much. the The elderly is what I noticed, mm-hmm. and so I started to just go and introduce myself because that's kind of what I do. I like, you know, people are kind of taken back by that, but I like to walk up to people and just put my hand out and say hello. You know, I'm Craig, and you know, and it's <laughs> like, and and uh, so that's what I did with a lot of the folks in Perry, and and then I just take my kids over and we go visit them and mainly just be there and and support them and and listen and and I just really saw the need for and I know this is not just my community but elderly for example they we don't do a very good job as a society as taking care of them and so I wanted to kind of remind people that hey listen you know just because you're 80 90 whatever it is and maybe your body's breaking down honestly most older people their minds are totally intact there's a it's kind of like anything people run with one like one experience and they say everything's like that like for example oh yeah all old people are dementia you know everything not not really actually most of them are just completely totally like you and I as younger people and and so so when they're sad or lonely it's the same feeling that we have when we're 10 20 30 whatever it is and so it's really important to remember that and that's why I use my art as a tool for that and uh, I started to when get involved, like I said, and that just kind of again my art because I'm an artist that evolved into an art show, um, and I wanted to address that in a way that hasn't been addressed before. You know? And it has a kind of a sculptural component to it, it too. Does. It isn't just the drawings, right? It You've does. got yeah, an I actual built, coffin. I built nursing home structures. Um, I was calling them altarpieces. Actually, a lot of Europeans were calling them altarpieces, which is cool. Um, but they're about eight feet tall by six feet wide. Um, I build the structure around coffins. And they're, um, so I found these 100 year old coffins at a local um, antique store. And it was actually probably humorous because I was walking down the street with one of these coffins on my shoulder. And I don't, I don't know what that looked like to people. But, but again, you know, you got to remember, I'm in a small town anyway. And people already, everybody knows who, who I am, even if I don't know them because I'm an artist. Like, and, and, and I think already they kind of, you know, have a preconceived who is this guy? And now, you know, they see me walking with a coffin. And actually, though, it was funny, though, I met these neighbors that are part-timers that come up from St. Louis, and I brought him over one time to, to uh, he was talking to me and about his garden, and he came over, and I, and I had a coffin out, I was working on it, and he looked at it, and he's like, what's that? I mean, you know, and I explain, oh, it's just a coffin, I, you know, I collect them right now if I'm doing, the, and I don't think he heard anything else after that, it, and, and he never talked to me again. And no, I'm not kidding, I mean, he, he, I waved at him, you know, and like neighbors should do, and I don't know what he thinks, but yeah, so I built these nursing homes, and, uh, and by the way, old coffins are very beautifully constructed and very ornate, and, uh, and, and then, so I, but honestly with this piece though, and then I'd incorporate drawings of the elderly folks in my community into the piece, 
um, and then on the side of the of the these pieces, I would write like a, maybe a, a schedule for a nursing home, um, and or a, a menu for a nursing home. But it was all very childish too. The schedules and the um, and I just wanted to bring to light, you know, yeah, nursing homes are fine, but let's let's still visit our folks that are in there and. And um, it doesn't even have to be somebody in our own family. They're, I mean, we're important, you know, and I'm important, you're important. We're all important. And I just, because hopefully I get to be an old, old man. And I, I really want people to still not to throw me away, you know. And so, <laughs> and yeah, and so that show went really well. And people were in tears. And um, that's not exaggerating. They were. And that's a really neat feeling as an artist. I mean, honestly, whatever you do, if you're, if you sing songs or do art or whatever, and uh, if people shed a few tears, if you feel like you're doing something right, you know, mm-hmm. you're like, okay, this is impactful. You know? And the faces that you draw, mm-hmm. that you use in your works, I mean, they, they're real people. Correct. Do, do you have your mother in that one? Is there? No, not my mother, but my oh, well, my wife's grandmother. Okay. Who's 93 now. But we go and we, we, she lives in a small town called Ladonia that's pretty close to us. So we go see her pretty often. But she was a good sport because I would take a lot of uh, pictures of her. You know, and uh, like one piece I did, I was just talking about it, spending time with like actually my daughter Lucille's in in with us today, and she's in a lot of these drawings actually. And uh, but my yeah, great her great granny is I, I you know she wore goggles, she put everything you know she made expressions <laughs> that really I think challenged her a little bit you know. Uh, you know, kind of, I wanted Jim Carrey kind of, you know, expressions, you know, and she did that for me, you know, really out of her comfort zone. But. So in, in a minute or so that we have left, tell me what you're working on next. What's uh, the um, next show? I, I actually have a, a, um, some drawings that I've done on, I wanted to touch on domestic violence. That's my next uh, topic. And Another cheery uh, subject? Yes, yes. And also I wanted to actually play a little bit with the idea of... Um, uh, the Pope Mobile. So anyway, yeah, yeah. Can you get old Pope Mobiles? You know, do they are they lying around? In like yeah, no, I don't. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. I'm looking. So if you come across one, let me know. So I bet there is one somewhere. I mean, I, there's got to be. Yeah, at least one. You know, that when they started making them, that you know, it's outdated. They need to get rid of it. No. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM KOP in Columbia, and I've been talking with artist Craig Norton. Thank you so much, Craig, for being here. Thank you, Diana. Appreciate About his show entitled Real Western Art that you have a few more days to see. It's at the Larson Gallery at Columbia College until next Friday, September the 28th. But hopefully we will see other shows of Craig's here in Columbia. It would be great. Your work's amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, we are going to end this week's show as usual. Um, looking at uh, some of the events that are coming up over the next few days in and around Colombia. Craig, you can stay or listen to what's coming up or you can <laughs> you can go. <laughs> so tonight at Columbia Entertainment Company, you can see their production of Cabaret, which is in its second of three weekends. The show starts at 7.30 and tickets are $10. At Stevens College, you heard them earlier on the show at the Mecklenburg Theatre. It's opening night for Fun Home, based on the graphic memoir by cartoonist Alison Bechdel. Play starts at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow night. And if you arrive a little bit early, you can see the pop-up art show called Honouring Outstanding Women, which is a joint show between the Columbia Art League and Stevens College. If you'd like to attend the opening reception for the Honouring Outstanding Women, then head over to the Mecklenburg Theatre about six o'clock. The MU Theatre Department continues its Life and Literature performance series at Studio 4 at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow with a 2pm matinee on Sunday. And at the Lyceum Theatre in Ararock, it's the first weekend for the Honky Tonk Angels. Tickets there are 39 and you can catch a 2 or 8pm performance today and tomorrow and a 2pm matinee on Sunday. 
Saturday and that show also continues next weekend. In Fulton, Art on the Bricks starts at 5pm this evening and, and continues all day tomorrow. Tonight, the K Brothers perform from 7 till 10 at the Playhouse in Fulton and you can also see the art exhibit Hide and Seek at the Art House. Tomorrow, the festival opens at 9am and as well as live musical day, you can check out the Art Makers Market and the Farmers Market. On 9th Street tonight, it's the last in the Blue Notes Summerfest concert series with Cody Jinx on stage at 7 and tickets are 35. At Cafe Berlin, the Dave King duo play at 7 and at Rose Musical, you can hear Missouri native Nick Schnabel... I can't even say his name. Schnabelen. Nick Schnabelen. Sorry, Nick. And the Mojo Roots at 9pm. And at Jesse Hall, comedian Buzz Sutherland is on stage at 7 o'clock tonight. Tomorrow, on Saturday morning, author Karen Piper discusses her latest book, a coming-of-age memoir called A Girl's Guide to Missiles. And that's at the Boone History and Culture Centre at 10.30am. That's free to attend. On Saturday night, the former and now-retired executive director of Talking Horse Productions, Ed Hansen, is getting roasted. The roast starts at 7 30 at Talking Horse and tickets, if any are still available, are $25. Out at Cooper's Landing, the Fried Craw Daddies are playing live from 6pm tomorrow and at Catfish Caters you can see the January Lanterns from 2 to 4 and then Ruth a Cuff from 6 to 8. In town, Hogwarts comes to the Blue Note on Saturday with Wizard Fest, a Harry Potter themed dance party. The magic gets underway at 9pm and $18 gets you in the door. And at Rose Music Hall, there's a tribute to Rage Against the Machine performed by Decadent Nation. That's at 9.30 tomorrow night. Sunday afternoon, um, uh, we can go to Catfish Caters. There's something on from 2 till 4. Uh, the We Always Swing Jazz Series launches into its 24th season with the Tutti Heath Trio featuring Emmett Cohen and Kokoran Holt at Murray's on Sunday evening. And you have two chances to catch their performance. They've got a matinee at 3.30 and an evening show at 7. Call the Jazz Series to ask about tickets. Um, do check out Craig Norton's show. That's on all of next week at the Larson Gallery at Columbia College. Monday Sunday evening, pianist and vocalist Mary Ellen Kirk is in concert at the Boone History and Culture Centre. Her performance starts at 7 um, and tickets are $20. And you can also hear the Columbia Jazz Orchestra at Broadway Brewery. Big event on Tuesday evening. The One Read programme has its signature event when Flowers of the Killer Moon book author David Gran reads from his book and discusses his research at Columbia College at the Launa Auditorium. And that's at 7 o'clock on Tuesday. Wednesday, we have Pints and Punchlines, the Rose Comedy Club night. That's back at Rose Music Hall next Wednesday at 9pm and don't know how much time we've left and finally on Thursday next week you can head to Hallsville for the second annual Fun Fest at the Hallsville Fairgrounds that event gets underway at 5pm and I think there are also several Roots and Blues preview events probably coming up over the next few days too and that's the following that's next weekend you've been listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me Diana Moxon my good friend and sound engineer Mike Hagen and special guest all the way from Adelaide Australia Guy Morgan is in the house <laughs> I'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews about the arts in mid-Missouri stay arty Columbia <laughs>